since Chance invited me to join NBC and present video shows, I've been extremely impressed with his competence and professionalism, show after show after show, where we have been covering the most important issues of our time with the best experts available for your benefit and my edification as well. I've learned a great deal through these programs, and we must be having some success because the constant harassment and attacks that Chance has experienced right here on NBC are a backward compliment that we are making a difference. In order to continue to persevere, we need your help. We need new equipment, a new server, new computer. We can do it. We're not talking about a large sum of money, but anything you can contribute would be a tremendous help. And I'm going to reach into my pocketbook, too, to help with this most worthy effort. Thank you very much for any contribution you're able to make. This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. It looks like one of those scenes of an old building being purposely dynamited and blown. When we are successful, I'm just a patsy, and we will be. We're ready to make uh, to come to the microphone, so we'll listen up. A new world order. My name's Robbie Parker. It might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Live from the Media Broadcasting Center. 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 the galaxy this is where conspiracy on the wild side meets the perspective of a lifetime this is the free zone with your host freeman hello and welcome to the free zone well it's not feeling so free these days i mean everyone is quite aware of false flag attacks this has become history we know these things happen now as we're standing in front of what seems to be a Muslim versus homosexual shootout in Orlando, uh, at the same time we're dealing with the Bilderberg meeting, we have a situation where they're equating this to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And I could think of no one better than Jim Fetzer to come and tell us and help us discuss what is going on at the Pulse Club in Orlando where now it is reported 50 are dead and 53 injured. There's already mysteries all about this. We're going to get deep into this. Jim Fetzer, you can catch him all the time. Get on over and check out The Real Deal. You'll get a live video broadcast hosting all the ideas and, and great thoughts that Jim has brought forward and has had banned from Amazon. Uh, he also hosts The Raw Deal. And if you want to pick up his books, check them out at moonrockbooks.com. You can find everything from Jim at jimfetzer.blogspot.com as well. 
so that you can keep tabs on these amazing times because we are sitting in a situation right now where we can see clearly that history is being written, that the script is being changed, and that what really is coming under fire from all that we're looking at is the Constitution. So we're going to look deep into all of this right now and get deep into this with Jim Fetzer. So thank you for coming on with us here tonight. Oh, terrific, Freeman. Yeah, the Orlando situation is unbelievable, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, that's the situation that we sit at. I mean, okay, let's go ahead and just open with the concept that your book, No One Died at Sandy Hook, was banned straight out of Amazon, and you you have now had to, well, you're just giving it away for free because you know this data is important. Well, you're right. When uh, when Amazon banned the book, I, I just coincidentally was going on with Jeff Rents that night and made the decision to release it for free as a PDF, which a lot of places have picked up. So that a friend of mine who's been following this has said that he's noticed millions of people looking for the book, but that Google periodically adjusts as the numbers downward so people aren't aware how much it's in demand. Uh, it happened after Jay Carney, who was White House spokesman, had gone to Amazon as senior vice president, the book was actually released for sale on the 22nd of October. It had sold nearly 500 copies before it was banned on 19 November. Uh, and and uh, after I released it, I suspect that it's had millions of readers, Be although I would have originally estimated it would probably would sell 4,000 to 8,000 copies. I've been able to find a new publisher happily, and it's now available along with my Boston book, book and an earlier one about the moon landings at moonrockbooks.com. Fantastic. Yes. I mean, we are seeing this right now, and we are seeing a host of reports coming out from these false flags, crisis actors. It's been quite a show. I mean, from the time of the Aurora shooting into Sandy Hook and, of course, you know, <laughs> numerous others – and we can see that there is a script. Now, it was so simple for us to predict that Hannah or Miley Cyrus would come out with pansexuality that after they had splashed the White House in rainbow colors for homosexual weddings, that this Muslim versus homosexual situation would come to a head. And now here we are with the exact same scenarios uh, uh, Crazy, you know, madness. They're, they're equating this to, to every worst attack that has ever happened on this, this continent. Well, it's completely ridiculous. I mean, among the signs that something was wrong at Sandy Hook, there was no surge of EMTs into the building, no string of ambulances to rush the little bodies off to hospitals where they could be declared to be dead or alive. No medevac helicopter was called. In fact, the road was so clogged that if you'd actually wanted to get an emergency vehicle down Dickinson Drive, it was physically impossible. Even photographs, aerial photographs, reveal the scam because it was a 28-degree ground temperature day. You should have seen heat and steam rising from the building. But it had actually been closed by 2008. The school built, was loaded with bio uh, asbestos and other biohazards. Uh, it had been damaged by past hurricanes. It was in such terrible condition that to bring it into conformity with the state in federal laws regarding Americans with Disability Acts would have been extremely expensive. 
So they made the determination then to shut it down. They were using it for storage. If you look at the aerial photographs, you'll notice immediately the absence of the familiar blue and white painted parking areas and the blue and white signage. You'll see that there's a wooden stairway, for example, as an exit that would not be wheelchair accessibility. In that instance, it even has a piece of steel pipe sticking out that could pop the eye of a little kid. This was a kindergarten through fourth grade school. And if you look at the rows of vehicles in the middle, you see they're not properly parked. They're all parked facing the building, but the driving instructions require you come in, turn right, curl around, park facing away from the building. But since they were simply serving as props, they found it simpler just to bring them all in in a straight line and put them in two by two by two. Much simpler, yes, but for the discerning eye, if you're paying attention, you can realize this is a major discrepancy. So the fact there's no heat or steam rising from the building is indicative that it was a cold school. There wasn't any classroom activity taking place at all. And believe it or not, Freeman, we've even got in the book two chapters of 50 photographs each, one of those the furnishing of the Lanza home to serve as a prop. It appears to have been an empty house. It was in a high real estate, high value real estate area, but they put cheap furniture in. You can see Adam Lanza's uh, room messy, Adam Lanza's room neat. I mean, they were trying to figure out the best way to present it. And, and when you get up to the, the one of the most interesting photographs is of the Nancy Lanza bedroom where Adam allegedly shot her four times in the head with a twenty two caliber rifle, remarkably leaving no fingerprints whatsoever on the weapon. And if you look at the bed, you see there's a little red stuff there, but it doesn't look like blood. It looks to me like it might be raspberry jam. There's a wooden chest there that has papers on it, which we found in other photographs because they were keeping records of how they were furnishing the room. And the keen eye of Kelly Watt, who has her own commercial and home cleaning business, she spotted a blue moving pad under the leg of the bed that in their haste they'd forgotten to remove. In in chapter seven, it's even more devastating because we have 50 photographs of them refurbishing the school to serve as a prop. We even have the moving vans there. We have the nameplates for the classroom that still have the moving van speaker sticker on them. And, and the classic is the, the SWAT team vehicle is there. And if you look over the top, there a row of four windows in classroom 10 which are undamaged, but later, after the presumptive event, would be shown to be shot out, especially the second window in, but it's undamaged here. The flag is at full mast. If you look down below, you see there's crime scene tape up for a crime that is yet to be committed. And and uh, Wayne Carver, the medical examiner, is leaning against a wall with his arms folded, waiting for the arrival of his portable mortuary tent now, we have other photographs that show the difference between the windows undamaged and the windows damaged and of the perps actually drilling fake bullet holes in the window frame to simulate uh, shots that were never fired where they're all exactly 90 degrees to the window pane and exactly parallel with one another. I'm a former Marine Corps officer. I used to supervise recruit training at, at San Diego and Edson Range, and I, I with, with 15 DIs and 300 recruits, and I'll tell you, this is obviously uh, unreal. No, no actual shooting would have yielded this result. So we have all that, including the photograph of the perps drilling the holes uh, for Sandy Hook. 
Now, now, one of the key signs of both Sandy Hook and the Boston bombing, Freeman, is that there was no surge, no, no string of ambulances. I mean, you think immediately you've got, uh, you know, 20 kids, six adults. you got to have the string of ambulance. Boston bombing, the numbers went up as high as uh, uh, 160 or more that were alleged to have been injured. No string of ambulance. Again, Orlando, 50, 50 police cars, but no string of ambulances. Uh, which is all indicative that this is uh, something completely wrong, that people aren't actually injured here, because they can't divert bona fide medical resources for a for a fake event, a staged event. That it, it could very well be that others need those resources, and uh, therefore you might cost the life of a real person by doing it. I mean, if we run through the official account about Orlando, it's a, it, you know. It, even on its face, it seems very peculiar because you got this gay bar or club where there's supposed to be 50 dead and 53 injured. You got a Muslim shooter who's calling out Allah Akbar. He's supposed to be using an AR-15, which of course is an assault rifle. It's a civilian version. It's not actually fully automatic, but semi. You have to pull the trigger each time to fire around. You can't just depress the trigger and have it continue to fire continuously. He allegedly made a 911 call to the police pledging his fealty to ISIS. Uh, he is claimed to be inspired by the Boston bombing. Well, well, let me just interject a word there before I continue with this list. I mean, the Boston bombing, again, was supposed to have been done by Muslims, two Muslim brothers. Uh, but we know the whole thing was uh, fake. We had the police on bullhorns calling out, this is a drill. This is a drill. We had the Boston Globe tweeting that a demonstration bomb would be set off during the marathon for the benefit of bomb squad activities. A second tweet saying one will be set off in one minute in front of the library. And lo and behold, one minute later, one of these explosions goes off in, in front of the Boston Public Library. You have a lot of noise and smoke. I'm a former artillery officer, and I can assure you those were puff pieces. They didn't have enough explosive force to kill anyone. When you look through the smoke, you see there are bodies there with missing limbs, but Freeman, there's no blood. As Lorraine Day, MD, who is the chief of trauma surgery for San Francisco General Hospital for 25 years has observed, this is a physiological impossibility. You cannot have limbs blown off by an explosion and there be no blood. In fact, it's a while before the blood starts to show up and it's much too bright to be real blood. It's Hollywood blood. It came out of tubes. Uh, interestingly, uh, uh, Nathan Folks, who's a Hollywood producer director, identified one of the key players, a tall guy in a cowboy hat, as an actor he cast in one of his own films. His name is Carlos Arredondo. And, and he suggested to me, and it was the first time I'd heard the idea that they actually use a smoke machine, and would you believe, Freeman, we searched through the photographic record, we found a studio-grade smoke machine. It was such a significant discovery, I put a, a photograph of it on the back cover of the book, and nobody died in Boston either, where actually, you know, in terms of the marathon bombing itself, nobody died. There are three persons who may have died. One is an IT, MIT security guard who's supposed to have been shot by Zokar, but where, in fact, it looks as though once he discovered he was being sought, that he knew this guy and was interested in turning himself in. So he was shot, and it was claimed that Zokar had done it. Then his brother winds up dead, 
Uh, we have photographs of his body with a huge gash in the side. And it's claimed that Zoker did it, but he died after he was taken into police custody. So how could Zoker have killed his brother after he'd been taken into police custody? In fact, we have a witness saying she watched the police drive over him three times in an SUV, which appears to be his, his own vehicle. And then to blame it on Zoker, completely absurd. And, and get this, we have uh, photographs, this is part of the government's own evidence, of the two brothers at the marathon. Now, I learned from his aunt, Morette, that these images of them at the marathon had been photoshopped, uh, especially because it showed the older brother, Tamerlan, clean-shaven. And she explained to me that he had a beard, and I asked if she could prove it. She started sending me all this evidence, photograph of him lying in bed with his cat, he has a beard, a link to a video at a gymnasium where he and his brother were working out before the shooting, the, the bombing. They had a, he had a beard. A friend of theirs actually contacted him after the marathon bombing, relieved to discover he'd been nowhere in the vicinity. They had dinner together that night. He had a beard. Then a surveillance tape from inside a convenience store where Zoker's inside Tamerlan out. He has a beard. Then when he's taken into arrest, we actually have photographs where the police strip him naked and put him in the back car. If you get unblurred images, you can see he has a beard. Even in the, the photograph of his body, he's still got a beard. But, but get this, Freeman, it, it's even worse than that. I mean, this shows how incompetent these people are. According to the FBI report that in, in photographs, we have ample proof. The, the backpacks that blew up were black nylon backpacks. That's in the FBI's official report. It's also in the indictment for Zoker in the, in the, in the court in, in Boston, where this complete show trial had no authenticity whatsoever was conducted. Uh, and from the photographs we have of them, you can see their backpacks. Neither of them is wearing a black nylon backpack. So that I consulted a retired professor of law, John Remington Graham, about the significance of our evidence and what he thought was most important. And he said the fact that the backpacks don't match mean there wasn't even probable cause for an arrest, much less an indictment or a conviction at a trial. So even in staging this event, Freeman, they got sloppy about it, very careless. We actually know who the perps were. This case was cracked by the alternative media already the night that it had occurred by discovering all these craft international personnel in khaki trousers, black jackets, black baseball caps with a skull insignia, where the motto of craft is violence does solve problems. We have photographs of two of these guys heading toward the location where one of the backpacks blew up. One is wearing a black nylon backpack with a white square. The backpack that blows up is a black nylon backpack with a white square. We have other of him rushing away, no longer carrying the black nylon backpack with a white square. I mean, this is completely ridiculous and absurd. So, that you know, all my research on this subject, by the way, is collaborative. When I did Sandy Hook, for example, I brought together a dozen different experts, including six, Ph.D. current or retired college professors, which is significant because a Ph.D. is a research degree. It certifies that you're competent to conduct scholarly research in, the, in your area of expertise. But, of course, that has a general uh, outreach. I mean, my own Ph.D. is in the history and the philosophy of science. But I've done a huge amount of research on these subjects, since I, especially since I retired in 2006 after a 35-year career offering principally courses in logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning. Similarly with the Boston bombing, I brought together another dozen experts, including, again, six 
uh, current or retired PhD professors and even have a contribution from Paul Craig Roberts, who was talking about the findings of the professor of law and where Paul Craig Roberts is uh, perhaps our nation's leading public intellectual. So, you know, I've, I have a great deal of background here. I mean, some of our contributors, one, Dr. Eowyn, who maintains the Fellowship of the Minds website, had published 80 articles on Sandy Hook before I edited the collection. I myself had published 20 articles on Sandy Hook before I edited the collection. And because I'm doing my, my video show, The Real Deal, on Media Broadcasting Center, NBC, I had been doing a lot of shows about uh, the Boston bombing and Sandy Hook, two of the classics you can find online entitled The Real Deal Must Seem uh, Special, Sandy Hook update and the real deal special must see Boston bombing update. I, I don't think anyone who views either of those, where they're less than an hour uh, long apiece, could have any doubt that both of those were staged events. So when we now turn to Orlando and we see some of the telling signs already, such as the absence of any string of ambulances, lots of police vehicles, but no ambulances, we have to be very suspicious. It, it, indeed, it turns out, of course, this is taking place in Florida, which is a swing state, very important state. The mayor of Orlando turns out to be an, an adamant opponent of guns, so he's an enthusiastic anti-gun guy. Uh, we've had interviews already by, for example, an uh, Israeli Defense Force uh, anti-terrorist expert who talked about how if this had happened in, in Israel, uh, the, the gunman would have been shot dead within moments. Um, implying that if you had more security or more guns present, that it would have made a difference. Uh, in fact, the Donald uh, has already observed about uh, Paris, for example, that if the citizens had been armed, uh, that it would have made a real difference, about which I think there can be no serious doubt. Now, the, 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 the club in this instance, Pulse, is a gun-free zone. But that means that they were inspecting people who came in for whether they had any weapons or not. It was hot in Florida. This is the summer, after all. People are relatively scantily clad. It's not like winter, where you might be in a northern state bundled up with all kinds of coats. So it's questionable how this guy could possibly have got into the uh, club in the first place. And then we have a former Israeli ambassador to the United States, uh, Michael Oren, who's saying that this event is going to help Donald Trump, actually, ironically, in relation to all these events. But the reason why it's problematic for Obama include that this guy is not uh, not a white or a Christian, but he's a person of color and a Muslim. He's not a Republican, but a Democrat. He purchased his firearms legally. In fact, he had a, a couple of permits. He had a Class D license, which is given to security guards, and a Class G license, which is a general concealed carry. Both were legal and not set to expire until September 2017. So that Obama goes out of his way to try to focus on the, the good parts for him, which are that it involved guns and gays, because this is supposed to be disrespectful of gays. And, of course, we, we need to ban uh, these weapons that are causing these events. Uh, and doesn't talk about the fact that, and, and he even says that his motivation is unclear, which is absurd. I mean, even according to the official count, he was calling out Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, which of course is Arabic for God is great. God is great. And I'll comment more on that and some other aspects of this, but let me just say, 
Obama is ignoring the fact that Islam is very uh, antagonistic toward homosexuality. I mean, I'm looking right now at a statement made by a, an Islamic cleric um, in his declaration, the punishment for homosexuality is death. Well, Obama would never mount, uh, you know, admit that. In fact, Obama isn't even acknowledging the guy's Muslim. Obama is not even willing to use the phrase Islamic terrorism. I mean, something's seriously wrong here, Freeman. And uh, this just opens up a whole can of worms, I think, across a wide range of issues. Absolutely. You know, this is how we get to what they are after. This is how we start to understand where this game plan is going. And, you know, right now, Hillary's on CNN talking about lone wolves being a priority and they need to prevent online radicalization. And a lot of the things that you're saying with the, the mysterious, the people that perhaps did die in these situations. I mean, in Sandy Hook, obviously, I could not see any evidence to anyone dying in Sandy Hook while I watched that happening. Uh, now, we go back all the way to Waco, uh, back to the Clintons again, and yeah. you have that one character laying on the roof being shot at. And back in 96, I guess that was, uh, we witnessed that the three shots coming out of the Waco building were from Clinton's bodyguards who were now FEMA agents or ATF agents going into the building and being shot by their own man. Freeman, we have, we have aerial footage of the Waco event. You can see automatic weapons fire coming from outside from the FBI agents and ATF into the building. Uh, they actually initiated the fire of the building. They burned alive, you know, what, 150 children and adults. And it was just because they were eccentric in terms of their religious beliefs. David Koresh, whom they claimed they were after, regularly walked from the compound into town. They could have picked him up any time they wanted. They didn't have to burn down the compound. Something bizarre was going on there. Right. And Hillary, Hillary now, and now you see... The political motivation is coming out because the idea is supposed to be this radicalization through the Internet. So now they're going to have to censor the Internet, right, so that we, we couldn't have this kind of conversation and have it broadcast over the Internet because it's going to be something that's going to be, uh, you know, inflammatory or incite Muslim hatred or whatnot. I mean, they, they get very uh, clever, but I think too complicated by half. For, for example, this thing about ISIS. ISIS was actually founded in 2012 by the Defense Intelligence Agency as a method of coping with the fact that Obama had been frustrated from lobbing cruise missiles into Syria in response to the gas attack, uh, which was allegedly done by Assad on his own people. The Russians uh, put the quietus to that with a 50-page documented report showing that actually it had been done by the rebels. And now in some of the Hillary emails that are trickling out, uh, not only was Hillary, you know, the principal in motivating the assault on Libya, which was a complete massacre of a wonderful society, but where Omar Gaddafi was sharing the wealth of Libya with the Libyan people, national health care, national public education, national warehouses. Anyone who was hungry could go to one of these warehouses and obtain all the food they could ever need. If you had a health care problem, couldn't be dealt with in Libya, he'd fly you and a friend or relative anywhere in the world, all expense paid by the government. He was undertaking the Great Waterworks Project that would have turned North Africa into a veritable oasis. 
and sin of sins, the gold dinar, which would have rapidly become the currency of all of uh, Africa. And it turns out in Hillary's emails, we learned that the real reasons for going into Libya were because the Western banking interests, and read that Rothschilds, uh, were upset that the gold dinar might become the currency. They wanted to put a halt to that and that the French wanted to preserve Africa as their own preserve as a neo-colonial empire. So they came in, sent in mercenaries. They were paid three times for the same body, first to kill it, second to chop it up, third to burn it. Uh, rape became systematic and ubiquitous, uh, completely disgusting. I mean, before this event, there had been virtually no crime in Libya because everyone was having their needs uh, satisfied uh, by the government. Some of us think that's a proper function of government to to accommodate the needs of the people and then provide opportunities for their wants, their aspirations, their, their desires to fulfill themselves by means of various creative or other projects and undertakings. But this was just a, just a slaughter of the people. And, Lim, and, and Hillary was a great cheerleader. Uh, it also turns out from her emails that we learned that the intervention in Syria had nothing to do with Assad allegedly abusing the people, but was to benefit Israel, which, of course, was the whole motivation behind 9-11. Uh, which appears to have originated in the fertile imagination of Bibi Netanyahu, who conducted a conference in Jerusalem uh, even before the demise of, of the Soviet Union in 1990-91, published a book in 1987 entitled Terrorism, How the West Can Win, Quit, Can Win, before the concept of terrorism was in anyone's mind. And we know that the members of the Project for a New American Century most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens, believe there was a unique historical opportunity now with a dissolution of the Soviet Union if the United States would only move aggressively into that geopolitically sensitive area and exert military and diplomatic pressure outward from the Middle East, that we could create a new American empire that would endure for the next 100 years. Uh, these people moved largely into the Department of Defense when Bush, Bush and Cheney were were elected through the rigged uh, events in Florida where Jeb Bush was the governor and all kinds of malfeasance was taking place there to ensure uh, just as all kind that their victory, just as all kinds of malfeasance is taking place now to ensure Hillary's victory. This is all completely disgusting stuff. But where, you know, the idea was to reverse American foreign policy from one in which, at least officially, we never attacked any nation that had not attacked us first, to one in which we became the greatest aggressor nation in the world, where Wesley Clark would eventually spell out what the plan uh, covered of taking out seven governments in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya, ending with Syria and Iran. Russia has stopped the assault on Syria uh, by a, a brilliant move by Vladimir Putin, who appears to me to be the only true statesman astride the world stage today, but where Hillary's email revealed it was all being done to benefit Israel, that it wasn't Assad abusing his people, but to benefit Israel. And, and, and to further that plan, at Dartmouth College last year, she announced that if she became president of the United States, she would bomb Iran. Well, this is completely bizarre, Freeman, uh, although most Americans aren't aware already in 2007, all 16 U.S. intel agencies concluded 
that Iran was not pursuing nuclear weapons, a conclusion they reaffirmed in 2011, uh, is the Israeli, the Mossad concluded in 2012 that Iran was not concluding nuclear weapons, which it, pursuing nuclear weapons, which it, it informed the Israeli government three weeks before Bibi Netanyahu went to the UN and announced precisely the opposite. Moreover, these sanctions that we've imposed on Israel, on, on Iran, just as the sanctions we imposed on Iraq are violations of Article 33 of the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which explicitly state that no person may be punished for a crime they did not personally commit. These are forms of collective punishment in Iraq. It led to the death of some 500,000 Iraqi infants. Madeleine Albright, then Secretary of State, uh, uh, affirmed that it had been worth the effort, uh, the death of those 500,000 uh, infants to, to maintain this, this no-fly zone. And in Iran, it, it's simply absurd because uh, not, not only has Iran not been pursuing nuclear weapons, but Iran hasn't attacked any other nations since 1775. Just to put that in perspective, the ratification of the Constitution began in 1787. George Washington became president in 1789. So for longer than the United States has existed as a constitutional republic, Iran has not attacked any other nation. Yet Hillary's at Dartmouth talking about bombing Iran into the Stone Age. All of this is completely disgusting. And now you can see further, you see that the, 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 the banking empire, the Rothschilds, had a key role here, even in the, the bizarre announcement by the AP on Monday before the primaries in California, New Jersey, Montana, North and South Dakota, New Mexico, that Hillary had already secured the nomination. That that situation had not changed for five weeks. You only got there by counting the superdelegates. And, of course, everyone knows Bernie's been contesting the role of the superdelegates. He pointed out that Hillary didn't have enough pledged delegates to secure the nomination then, nor does she today. She is still 180 delegates short to secure the nomination. So this was a blatant effort to manipulate, to suppress the vote. Uh, many excellent commentators have noticed. Pat Cadell has talked about it, Chuck Todd, Chris Hedges, about the impropriety of this. So I looked into the ownership of the Associated Press. And while it represents 1,400 independent newspapers, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the news that's distributed is controlled by six different huge corporations. They all get their news from either the AP or Reuters, and guess what? Reuters owns the AP, and guess what? The Rothschilds own Reuters. So clearly they're uh, wanting to support the war candidate, Hillary, who will keep these uh, ongoing intrusions into the Middle East going, both, both Bernie and the Donald have expressed their dismay over the chaos we've created in the Middle East. The Donald has remarked that we wish we could get the four to five trillion we've expended there back. Bernie has lambasted Hillary for supporting the Iraqi invasion. And they are the anti-establishment candidates that the establishment on both sides do not want to see to come to power. And hence, you've had all of the disgusting activities on both sides including, in the case of Bernie, by the way, not just this latest intervention, but if you go by the exit polls, I mean, in Europe, exit polls are used to determine the winner of an election where the tabulated vote is merely a formal confirmation. 
Well, in Illinois, Bernie won the exit poll, but the state was given to Hillary. In Ohio, Bernie won the exit poll, but the state was given to Hillary. In Missouri, Bernie won the exit poll, but the state was given to Hillary. In Kentucky, where I live, for you know, I, my first position as a professor was at the University of Kentucky. Uh, the, Pike County is a very big coal county. And Pike County, like uh, many other coal regions would be, would have been voting heavily against Hillary, who talked about putting coal miners and coal mines out of business. They wiped clean the vote in, in Pike County in Kentucky and started counting again when they could manipulate and ensure that Bernie uh, didn't get enough votes out of Pike County to actually win it. So that was another theft, which has been documented by a brilliant statistician by the name of Richard Charnin, who's actually published two books about the theft of elections using electronic voting machines, where, where when I was troubled by what was going on here in Wisconsin and was even in a, a studio of a local talk show host on Tuesday, 5 April, when the primary was taking place here, I was explaining how they were going to guarantee that Cruz beat Trump and that they presaged it by putting out a phony poll from the Marquette School of Law, which had less than a 1,000 participants, but showed a, 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 the result of a 20-point swing, because heretofore Trump had been leading here in Wisconsin by 10 points. Now suddenly he was trailing Cruz by another 10. That's a preposterous change in, in, in public attitude, especially when you're talking about Trump supporters who have been dedicated to him through thick and through thin, and, and where I discovered that there was a far more extensive poll of all eight districts here in Wisconsin that had averaged over a 1,000 participants apiece. In every one of those eight districts, right up before the election, Trump was leading by like 62 to 37, I mean, over Cruz. I mean, it was just completely ridiculous what happened here in Wisconsin. And when I asked Charnin to look into it because of my suspicions, he confirmed, yes, that there actually five different elections had been Stolen here in Wisconsin, including the recall election to take out, to take out Scott Walker, a uh, 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 judicial election involving a fellow named uh, Presser who was put on the Supreme Court. Then his uh, his campaign reelection against uh, uh, Mary Burke who was an excellent Democratic candidate, where we had an historic out turnout, which traditionally favors Democrats where they brought in Michelle twice, Barack, and even the big dog Bill Clinton. There was tremendous enthusiasm on the on the Democratic uh, side for, uh, for uh, Mary Burke and very little for Scott Walker, who's just committed a series of atrocities here in the state that have greatly uh, damaged the reputation of Wisconsin. And yet uh, it turned out that by a margin of uh, 53 to 47, uh, Walker won when the precisely the opposite should have been the case. Uh, when Richard Charnin looked into it, he discovered that they go, they go to big counties that have lots of votes in order to rig these elections. And in Milwaukee County, which is a huge bastion of Democratic vote, it, it turned out the greater the number of votes that were cast, the greater percentage of the vote that went to Scott Walker. I mean, that's simply absurd. So that, you know, he, he has verified what happened in Kentucky as well. This guy's completely brilliant, Richard Charnin. So we've had this series of malfeasance taking place here to benefit, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, to tarnish Trump, uh, and where now it turns out the standard practice, by the way, so you can't use exit polls, uh, to determine what actually has taken place is to adjust 
the exit polls to conform to uh, the tabulated vote, which means they're rendered useless, uh, whereas in the past they've been a highly reliable guide to the actual winners and losers of elections, and whereas I've already observed in Europe, they're used to determine the winner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're looking at this, uh, what seems to be a coup of some sort or, you know, the final power grab. And you and I can see the psychological warfare that is occurring. It's almost easy for us because we know to look for these false flags. And then the masses eating up their, their Reuters mainstream, just they are so easily manipulated into this situation we just had the Bilderbergers. We, we've got this whole thing coming out. We got Obama forming UN regional governors. We've got, uh, this mysterious claim on Iran, Iraq. Why, you know, why this region? Why? And we're trying to sort out what this psychological warfare is leading to. And. Well, yeah. well, it's very likely. I mean, Hillary is clearly a neocon. In fact, Obama turns out to be a neocon. You can tell because he's surrounded himself by neocons. Victoria Nuland in the Department of State, neocon, married to one of the most prominent neocons, Samantha Power at the United Nations, a neocon. Ash Carter, Department of Defense, a neocon. Susan Rice, his own personal foreign policy, national security advisor, a neocon. Uh, I mean, it's all completely disgusting. Let's not and, forget the CFR. And the Council of Foreign Relations, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, uh, this is all very troubling stuff. If, if we come back to Orlando, the, the signs that this was a, a funny rigged event include the fact that the principal witness is a guy named Christopher Hansen. Now, listen, I've been getting emails all day, even beginning yesterday, about different aspects of this Orlando thing. And uh, a, a fellow with whom I collaborate, I'm going to be doing a show of my own with him tonight by the name of Gary King, who had discovered that, well, I thought there were two different actors playing the role of a fellow named Jeff Bauman in Boston, where if you look through the smoke when you're looking at these bodies and there's no blood, there's a guy in a hoodie who's attaching a fake bone prosthesis onto one of the alleged victims who's not spurting any blood. I mean, you have to, if you had your legs blown off below the knees, that, that severs major arteries, you'd be spurting blood, you'd be unconscious in one minute, dead in two. He's actually assisting in attaching a full, false bone prosthesis to make the event look even more horrifying. The last thing you would do with someone with injuries like that is move them from the horizontal. You want to keep them flat, apply tourniquets. Instead, the Carlos Arredondo... The, the actor that, that Nathan Folks had identified assists in moving him into a wheelchair. And while they're rushing him off in the wheelchair, the vibrations cause the false prosthesis to come loose and they have to stop and reattach it. Well, we knew that 19 days later, uh, someone called Jeff Bauman shows up at a Boston Bruin Games, only now he's lost his legs above the knee, Freeman. Uh, it, Interestingly, the Jeff Bowman number one on the scene at the time was missing the little finger on his left hand, and it just so happens an Army lieutenant by the name of Vic, Nick Voigt had lost his legs below the knees and his little finger of his left hand in, the, in uh, Afghanistan. But now you have uh, a second Jeff Bowman who looks decidedly younger. He's holding a flag. He's got all his fingers, and now he's lost his legs above the knee. 
And would you believe, and this is what uh, Gary discovered, that I had not, even at the time I published the No and Nobody Died in Boston either, there was a third Jeff Bauman who was, who was wheelchaired out uh, during a baseball game by none other than Carlos Arredondo, and this guy has no legs at all, not even thighs. I mean, if anyone had any doubt about whether or not this was uh, done with amputee actors, I mean, there's about as conclusive proof as you could have. Three different amputee actors playing the same guy, Jeff Bauman. I turned it into a blog, too, as well as we have a YouTube, YouTube about it. The YouTube is entitled Boston Strong, the three Jeff Baumans. The, the blog at jamesfetzer.blogspot.com is entitled uh, Proof the Boston Bombing Was Staged in uh, Three Easy steps, steps, Number One, Number Two, Number Three. So I give you photographs of each of the three playing the same role of Jeff Bauman. I mean, uh, this is embarrassingly bad. I thought that Boston was the most amateurish false flag, but now I'm beginning to wonder whether uh, Orlando isn't going to rival or even surpass it. Because the same guy, Gary King, has discovered that this witness, Christopher Hansen, his actual name is Andrew Bowser, B-O-W-S-E-R, and he's an actor who's done a lot of commercials for RB. He's been on a show called My Pet Has Talent and a host of others. It's just simply ridiculous that you have this guy out there front and center. And, of course, a key, a, a key proof I mentioned already is you've got 50 police cars, but you have no ambulances. I mean, that's really an extremely telling sign. Gary has also pointed out to me that you don't have medical personnel dealing with the alleged bodies, which look very much like at the club in Paris, appear to be dummies, not real bodies, because you have these dummies lying on the floor, but there's no blood. And instead of the police or EMTs dealing with the bodies, it would normally be the EMTs, but you don't have a surge of EMTs there in, in Orlando any more than you had in Boston, any more than you had at Sandy Hook. They're, they're allowing, you know, the, the bar owner or keeper or whatever, they close the door so cameras can't follow what's going on there. We don't have any actual photographs of any bodies. I don't know of any real blood. I have seen one or two uh, uh, persons being carried out, but they didn't appear to be injured so far as I could tell. So all this looks, you know, very much, uh, very heavily staged. Then. Much like the Aurora shooting, we have a person reporting that there was a man inside holding the door shut, not allowing people to leave. Uh, in an Aurora shooting, we had uh, reports of two crisscrossing CS canisters coming from opposite doors and someone standing at the door to open it for for uh, James to, to enter. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Freeman. You're spot on. And yes, there are reports now that there were several shooters, not just the one, uh, Hillary and the major media. Now, bear in mind, as I said before, the major media is controlled. It's six different corporations. They get all their news from AP and Reuters. Reuters owns AP, and, and Reuters in turn is owned by the Rothschilds. So if the Rothschilds want Hillary, they're going to do whatever they can to benefit Hillary. Now, I think in this instance, it, it may not play out that way. Because uh, another point made by this former ambassador to the United States from Israel, Michael Oren, is that he believes this is going to give Trump a boost because it involves Muslims, although Obama isn't even willing to talk about it, and where Trump, of course, proposed a temporary ban until he can figure out what's going on here. Uh, I think he's right. I think it is going to give a, a boost 
to uh, to Trump's candidacy. But look at what Hillary is doing. You're reporting what she's you know going all over before Americans have any chance to think it through, trying to capitalize, you know, get as much uh, political benefit out of this uh, apparently staged event as she possibly can before the world catches up with what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, she is, I, this whole statement of stopping lone wolves, I mean, these type of open intel control situations uh, to, to play upon everybody's emotions at this moment, and then also the psychological manipulation of this homosexual situation where now you're, you're left mourning the homosexual situation, uh, and, and confused in the Muslim situation because of Obama. I mean, that's what I'm always looking at is the psychological warfare. Yeah. Where are they guiding us? What are they doing? Yeah. 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 Well, Obama's history. I mean, you know, Donald was savage for raising the birther issue, but my own research has established that he actually was born in Kenya. Uh, that they even went out of their way to create a fake Kenyan birth certificate. So if you start talking about the birth certificate from Kenya, they could say, oh, yeah, but it's been debunked and shown to be a fake. Uh, the fake has, uh, you know, the wrong officials. It doesn't even have uh, Kenya properly identified by its formal technical name at the time. The bona fide one actually has a footprint of the little fresh-born baby on the on the birth certificate. I had done a long show about the Hawaiian birth certificate on the real deal when it was still a radio show where I just made the transition in January of 2015, recognizing the benefits of being able to actually show the evidence I'm talking about. Show, for example, where you can see through the smoke and you see bodies with missing limbs, but there is no blood. Show a picture of Jeff Bauman number one, where his legs are missing below the knee. Uh, he's got this fake uh, bone extension of Jeff Bowman number two, where now his legs are missing above the knee of Buff Jeff Bowman number three, where now he has no legs at all, actually to be able to show them instead of merely describe them. So when I had the opportunity to go to NBC, I, I leaped at it because I knew how much more powerful it would make my presentations, uh, being able to actually present the evidence I was talking about. Uh, now, uh, Jane, Preston James, who writes for Veterans Today, has written a very, very good piece about what happened in Orlando. He thinks it's possible this was an MK Ultra operator if the shooting was real, uh, which I think is yet to be established, but that the agency, the CIA, has these uh, individuals who are under their control, mentally under their control, mind control operatives, uh, a, a, a thousand of them scattered all over the country. So if they if they want to have a shooting event, they can you know simply take control of one of these individuals and and get him in there to do whatever they want him to do. Well, everything so, we heard about James Holmes would lead you to that conclusion. Yes. I mean, he yes. was standing outside the building waiting to be arrested, not knowing why he was even standing there. He made full confessions of his mind control while in jail reported by one of the other inmates, of course, completely ignored by mainstream. Freeman, you're completely right. Sirhan Sirhan is maybe an even more perfect example. He, uh, A psychiatrist actually boasted of having hypnotized uh, Sirhan for the CIA. He had all this almost automatic writing, RFK must die, RFK must die, and all that, you know, totally uh, manipulated. And then he fired eight shots with his uh, revolver, 
whereas as many as 14 were fired in the pantry, and Bobby was hit four times from behind. Actually, one of the four shots passed through his clothing, didn't actually hit his body, but then he was hit several times in the upper back. One of the shots appears to have entered from under his armpit, and, and, and one is back and lodged in his uh, cervical vertebrae. But he was killed by a shot behind the right ear, fired from only about an inch and a half. And it was the same caliber, same type of gun Sirhan uh, had used. Uh, but Sirhan never got anywhere near close enough to have fired any of those shots. And, of course, was in front of him instead of behind him. And would you believe when the autopsy report by Thomas Noguchi, who is a world-famous medical examiner, established that Bobby had been killed by shots from behind because it was in conflict with the official L.A. police report where Daryl Gates, as I recall, ran the L.A. department with an iron hand. Noguchi was fired. I mean, it's simply absurd. The, the medical examiner's report, the autopsy report, is the basis for any legal uh, uh, investigation of a crime. So instead, they reversed the procedure, fired the coroner because he'd actually figured out the true cause of death was not that it exonerated Sirhan from, from having killed Bobby. I mean, it's one of the most disgusting cases of all time. And Sirhan is in complete absence of any memory whatsoever of what happened during the shooting. He had no idea. It does appear there was a woman there in a polka dot dress that was a psychological trigger for him to start shooting. But it's clear he was a diversion. He wasn't the actual assassin of Bobby Kennedy. Yep. So you're making you're making a good point. Yes, with Holmes and uh, in Aurora, and now with this fellow here in uh, who even has a mu- you know Muslim name. I, with okay, Omar Omar Mateen. I know Omar Mateen. He Omar is Omar Sadiq Mateen, twenty nine, born in the U.S. He's a U.S. citizen, the son of Afghan immigrants and had a Florida security officer license. He'd been employed since 2007 at a private security company, G4S, that provides security to federal buildings. I mean... He had aspirations to be a police officer. He yeah. was uh, college-trained, you know. Uh, but then his dad is putting out uh, somewhat of a hate speech video show as well. I have a report that his father claims to be the president of Afghanistan and that he's on very cordial terms with the Taliban. There you go. <laughs> I mean, Jim, this just, and, you know. And how can Barack Obama say we have no idea as to what his motivation? Right. That was a hate crime and involved weapons, so we got to get rid of the weapons, you know. It's been observed, by the way, that if he wanted to bring about maximum casualties, he could have set fire to the building, the, the that's been a technique that's proven tried and true in the past for getting a lot of people killed. And he seems to have, like uh, Adam Lodz at Sandy Hook, a phenomenal uh, target, uh, you know, uh, uh, kill-to-target ratio, where he's just a stunningly good with this weapon, this AR-15 he's alleged to have used. You're right. Now, I have fired an AR-15, and the one that I had was, like you were saying, semi-automatic, where actually the the kick of the rifle forced your arm because there was no trigger it was a a handle at the end of the of the barrel and when when it kicked it would cause that handle to move back and forth and give you somewhat of an automatic shot now i i released you know 30 bullets in less than 30 seconds out of that thing but there was no way that i could have aimed it <laughs> right that's right that's right that's right that's always been one of the classic objections, the alleged official scenario of 
Lee Oswald firing three shots and Dealey Plot. Moonrock Books. We're a group of scholars, experts, and authors who feel the world really needs saving and that resisting the American Empire is the right thing to do. People are starved for truth. They are given lies. They subsist on lies, but it's not really living. People are not watching TV news. They're ceasing to read newspapers, too, because they know by now they will not find it there. The biggest battle being fought anywhere is with information. If the people can receive the truth, they will do the right thing. We are publishing the truth about Sandy Hook, about the Boston bombing, about the moon landings, about the Holocaust, and much, much more. The truth. It falls upon us to fight the empire and save the world. Join us, Moonrock Books. invited me to join NBC and present video shows. I've been extremely impressed with his competence and professionalism, show after show after show, where we have been covering the most important issues of our time with the best experts available for your benefit and my edification as well. I've learned a great deal through these programs, and we must be having some success because the constant harassment and attacks that Chance has experienced right here on NBC are a backward compliment that we are making a difference. In order to continue to persevere, we need your help. We need new equipment, a new server, new computer. We can do it. We're not talking about a large sum of money, but anything you can contribute would be a tremendous help. And I'm going to reach into my pocketbook, too, to help with this most worthy effort. Thank you very much for any contribution you're able to make. This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal. 
In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. It looks like one of those scenes of an old building being purposely dynamited and blown. When we are successful, I'm just a patsy. And we will be. You ready to make, uh, to come to the microphone so we'll listen up. A new world order. So my name's Robbie Parker. It might have appeared that way, but from my close inspection, uh, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Live from the Media Broadcasting Center. 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 One. All right, welcome to the new JFK. 106. And Dr. Fesser is the, certainly the dean of JFK Research. And tonight we've got a super special guest, which I promised to surprise everyone. But tonight we've got Lee Harvey Oswald as our yeah. guest. Tyron. That's a pretty special guest, all right. Yeah. We had his mother last week, and I said, you know what? Why not? You never hear from Lee all that much. So um, we should be, Larry should be chiming in pretty much. He is the expert when it comes to Ed Butler and Carlos Brunier and the Cuban thing that was going on in New Orleans. So I hope he's joining in real quick. In fact, I might give him a call in a second uh, in between, you know, playing the audio. So we'll do it like we did last time. You can just kind of click. These are all, um, these are all pictures of the interview by, I think his name is Shackley or Stuckley, and it's a weekly radio show called The Latin Listening Post. So the the, uh, amusing part is it's actually a radio show, and so we're going to listen to the radio show, and what we're going to do is just at any time just, just say stop, and we'll stop and comment on it because it's very long, and uh, it can definitely go beyond the show. So we'll just stop whenever we feel like we want to talk. Well, Gary, Gary, how long is it? Uh, it's it's an, um, maybe 50 minutes, but we can just well, take fine. Okay, Larry and I will interrupt. Go ahead. Go for it. Is Larry with us now? Yeah. All right. I, I don't see him, but that's that's great. All right, here we go. The following was recorded on August 17, 1963, by William K. Stuckey in New Orleans, Louisiana. Material is subject to copyright by William K. Stuckey, 1963. Narrator is William K. Stuckey, 2317 State Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the first of a series of Latin listening post interviews of persons more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. In subsequent programs, we will present talks with people who are connected with the Cuban refugee organizations, people who are connected with President Batista, and U.S. citizens with direct stakes in the outcome of the Cuban situation. Tonight, we have with us a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected with Cuba in this country. The organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The person, Lee Oswald, Secretary of the New Orleans Chapter to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. This organization has long been on the Justice Department's blacklist and is a group which is generally considered to be the leading pro-Castro body in the nation. As a reporter of Latin American affairs in the city for several years now, your colonist has kept a lookout for local representatives of this pro-Castro group. None appeared in public view until this week. 
when young Lee Oswald was arrested and convicted for disturbing the peace. He was, erect, he was arrested while passing out pro-Castro literature to a crowd which included several violently anti-Castro Cuban refugees. When we finally tracked Mr. Oswald down today and asked him to participate in Latin listening posts, he told us frankly that he would because it may help his organization attract more members in this area. With that in mind, and knowing that Mr. Oswald must have had to demonstrate a great skill in dialectics before he was entrusted with his present post, we now proceed on a course of random questioning of Mr. Oswald. Mr. Oswald, uh, if I may, uh, how long has the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, had an organization in New Orleans? We have had members in this area for several months now. Up until about two months ago, however, we have not organized our members into any sort of active group. Uh, until, as you say, this week, we have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been, as you say, distributing literature on the street uh, for the purpose of trying to attract uh, new members and feel out the public. Gary, let me say already, notice he says they have had members in the area for quite a while, but they haven't formally organized, meaning there wasn't actually an organization to have members until they organized. And to the best of my knowledge, Lee Oswald was the only member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans at the time. Well, I was under the impression that what he was doing is finding out who were pro-Castro and running them out of town. I think Judy Baker had something to say about that. It was an effective way of finding out who really was pro-Castro and who really wasn't. So, um, well, it's interesting that this host notes that he was surrounded by anti-Castro operatives uh, where he ought to have drawn the inference of what is Lee Oswald, a pro-Castro guy, doing with a bunch of anti-Castro guys. And, of course, Chauncey told us that they were all members of Operation Mongoose. Yeah. Larry, you want to chime in? Yeah. I, I, one of the first things that strikes me when uh, listening to this audio uh, portion here on Lee Oswald is uh, that come to mind immediately, Jim and Gary, and I'm sure you, uh, you might agree with me on this, is, number one, the poise uh, with which he conducts himself, you know, himself as a 24-year-old, uh, that's something that's very striking, you know, uh, you know, you look at 24 year olds nowadays, or even when I was growing up or we were growing up, you know, they, they didn't have this type of poise, you know, and knowledge and the G, uh, coming from, uh, as well, you know, so it's very, uh, striking to me that, uh, he, he was uh, very knowledgeable and he knew what he was talking about when you dissect, you know, what you're going to hear now about different types of uh, uh, social systems, you know, in the world and everything and, and the medical uh, health uh, 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 reforms and everything and how these countries were surviving, uh, you know, it, it tells us, you know, that he knew a lot about the world. Well, um, you know what? At the beginning of this interview, he really is poised, but... You know, quite well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, but uh, go ahead. Keep going. I'm responsible for the, uh, the keeping of records and the, uh, the protection of the uh, members' names so that under publicity, our, uh, our attention will not be drawn to them if they do not desire it. My uh, duties are the, are the duties of a secretary of any organization. Our, our organization has a president, a secretary, and a treasurer. 
uh, the duties of those people would be more or less uh, self-evident. Those then are my duties. I do not, however, belong to any other organization uh, at all. Are you at liberty to reveal the membership of your organization? No, I'm not. For what reason? Well, he's, not, he's not mentioning, Gary, of course, he's not mentioning he is a member of the CIA, the, the ONI, the FBI. I mean, <laughs> that I can acknowledge publicly. That's what he means. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he's not naming any because there aren't any. <laughs> All right, here we go. Lee Oswald on the JFK show. I believe it's standard operating uh, procedure that our organization uh, consists of protect the names and addresses of its members. And I have every, uh, uh, that is my duty, and I have every reason to do that. Mr. Oswald, there are many commentators in the journalistic people in this country that equate uh, the fair play for Cuba, for Cuba with the American. Uh, what are you feeling about this? And are you a member of the American Communist Party? Well, <laughs> the uh, uh, fair play for Cuba committee with its headquarters at 799 Broadway in New York has been investigated by the Senate subcommittees uh, who are occupied with this sort of thing. They have investigated our organization from the viewpoint of taxes, uh, subversion, uh, allegiance, uh, and in general, where uh, and how and why we exist, uh, they have found absolutely nothing to connect us with the Communist Party of the United States. Uh, in regards to your question about whether I myself am a communist, uh, as I said, I do not belong to any other organization. I noticed from your pamphlets that the one bears the title of Hands Off Cuba. Just to make it the obvious point, you don't have to belong to an organization to be a communist, so that's clearly just evading the question, which may suggest he has had some instruction on how to deal with questions. He's talking very seriously about a lot of things for a young man like that. He also talks about himself being a Marxist, not a communist, in other contexts, whether it may be later in this particular conversation. But go ahead, Gary. I just wanted to make that point. Oh, yeah, you can stop anytime you want. And, go, for and it. go for it. Let me say this before we go on. This is a radio interview that came before the uh, debate. There was a debate that comes after this. So this can these shows can go on quite a while. But so later on we can we can go when he's debating Carlos Brangera, if I pronounce it right. And right. Ed and Ed yeah. Butler is a character that I actually know. I, well, I did know him. He passed on, but Ed Butler ran the radio station right down the street, and he openly said that he was CIA. Go for it, Gary. As to whether or not this applies to the Soviet Union as well as to the United States. Uh, this organization is not occupied at all uh, with the problem of the Soviet Union or the problem of uh, international communism. Uh, Hands Off Cuba is the main slogan of this committee. It means, uh, it follows uh, our first principle, which uh, has to do with non-intervention. In other words, keeping your hands off a foreign state, uh, which is uh, supported by the Constitution and so forth and so on. We have our own non-intervention laws. That is what Hands Off Cuba means. Uh, as I say, we are not... Uh, occupied at all with the problem of the Soviet Union. 
Does your group uh, believe that the Castro regime in Cuba is not actually a front for a Soviet colony in the Western Hemisphere? Very definitely. Uh, Castro is an independent uh, uh, leader of an independent country. He has ties with uh, the Soviet Union, with the Eastern Bloc. However, uh, I think it's rather obvious as to why and when and where because of the fact that uh, we certainly don't have any trade with them. We are discouraging trade. Uh, with that country, uh, with our allies and so forth. So, of course, he has to, to turn to Russia. That does not mean, however, that uh, he is dependent upon Russia. He receives trade from many countries, including Great Britain to a certain extent, France, uh, certain other powers in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, he is even trading uh, with uh, uh, several of the more independent uh, African states. So that uh, you cannot point to... Uh, at Catherine and say that he is a Russian puppet. He is not. He is an independent person, uh, an independent leader of his country. And I believe that was pointed out very well during the October crisis when Castro very definitely uh, said that all, although uh, Premier Khrushchev had urged him to have on-site inspection of his uh, uh, rocket bases in Cuba, that uh, Fidel Castro refused. Do you feel that the fair play for Cuba committee would... would uh would maintain his present line as far as, as supporting uh, President Arpinger Castro if the Soviet Union broke relations with the Castro regime in Cuba? We do not support the man. We do not support the individual. We support the idea of an independent revolution in the Western Hemisphere, free from American intervention. We do not support, as I say, the individual. If the Cuban people uh, destroy Castro, or if he is uh, otherwise proven to have betrayed his own revolution, that will not have any bearing upon this committee. We are uh, a, a committee uh, who, who do believe that Castro has not so far betrayed his own uh, country. Do you believe that the Castro regime is a communist regime? Uh, they have uh, not, uh, well, they have said they are a Marxist uh, country. On the other hand, so is Ghana, uh, so is uh, 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 several other countries in Africa. Are you starting to slip a little bit, starting to lose it? Uh, every country which emerges from a sort of a feudal state, as Cuba did, uh, experiments usually in socialism, in Marxism. Uh, for that matter, Great Britain has socialized medicine. Uh, you cannot say that Castro is a communist at this time because he has not developed uh, his country, his system, uh, so far. He has not had the chance to become a communist. He is an experimenter, a person who is trying to find the best way for his country. If he chooses uh, a socialist or a Marxist or a communist uh, uh, way of life, that is something uh, upon which only the Cuban people can pass. We do not have the right to pass on that. We can have our own opinions, naturally, but we cannot uh, exploit uh that uh, that system and say it is a bad one, it is a, a threat to our existence, and then go in and try to destroy it. That would be against our principles of democracy. But not the uh, policies of the American government in taking out, you know, the the, the, the nations of uh, Iraq, uh, Libya, uh, Syria, Iran, as uh, Wesley Clark described to us. I mean, it, actually what Oswald is saying here is impeccable, as a point of international law, but we, as in the aftermath of 9-11, which was set up to justify precisely that action, violated it repeatedly again and again and again. 
Larry? No, I agree 100%. <laughs> All right. Are you disagree with Dr. Fetzer? Play for Cuba Committee. Do you feel that capitalism in any form, or at least capitalism as we know it, has any place in the future of Cuba? Well, so far, the situation has developed where that it, uh, it is lost as far as uh, uh, Cuba is uh, capitalism goes. There will never be a capitalist regime again in Cuba. Uh, it may, Cuba may go the way of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, or it may go, go the way uh, to the other extreme, the way of uh, China. In other words, a dogmatic uh, communist system. That depends on how we handle the matter here in the United States. Does the Fair Play for Cuba Committee have any particular position in the Cuban, uh, or, or rather the Chinese and Russian conflict? Has it taken sides uh, as opposed to China's position in this conflict or as opposed to Russia's position? Well, no, we do not pass on international uh, uh, situations of that sort. Uh, as the name implies, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, we are occupied only with the one narrow point of Cuba, the problem of Cuba and what it is to us. We are not occupied or at all uh, with the problems of the uh, uh, Sino-Russian or the uh, uh, Yugoslavian-Russian uh, problems uh, whatsoever. I have here with me tonight the various pieces of literature that Mr. Oswald has been uh, distributing on street corners here in the last week. I'd like to read to you some of the titles. The first is a yellow handbill entitled Hands Off Cuba. Join the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, New Orleans Charter Member Branch. There's another pamphlet by the name of, quote, The Revolution Must Be a School of Unfettered Thought, dash Fidel Castro. There's still another pamphlet entitled Fidel Castro Denounces Bureaucracy and Sectarianism, and a fourth pamphlet entitled Ideology and Revolution by Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, I'm curious about the... A fifth pamphlet, however, Mr. Oswald, this, this to me was the most interesting. It's entitled The Crime Against Cuba by Carlos Lamont. The theme of this pamphlet is, uh, is the fact that the U.S. was uh, committed a grave injustice when it uh, backed the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. Now, it has, uh, it has probably a, a complete um, ideology here for the national liberation movement type of uh, philosophy that we hear a lot of in the, in the new countries. Um, thinking among the paragraphs, I see one here that I'd like to hear Mr. Oswald's comment on, and I'd like to quote. It is well to recall that the national emergency proclaimed by President Truman in 1950 during the Korean War is still in effect in the United States and has been utilized constantly for the curtailment of civil liberties. I hope you're commenting about the veracity of this statement. Well, of course, that is the last paragraph of a, a very long uh, page. That has to do with the fact that uh, propaganda in the United States has planted and uh, and shown Cuba and Castro to be to be in a very bad light. Now uh, they have mentioned uh, the U.S. government has mentioned that Castro has uh, declared an emergency in Cuba. He has not held elections, for instance, because of the fact that there is an emergency situation in Cuba. Now. The Castro government, in declaring that, is doing just what this book points out. It is doing what we did in 1950. And you recall what happened in 1950. That was during the beginning of the Korean War, when we felt that we were going to be in a very, very dangerous situation. 
we adopted an emergency law which restricted newspapers, broadcasters, radio and TV from giving any opinions, any comments, which were not already checked out by certain administrative bureaus of the United States government. That was under our emergency. At this time, Fidel Castro has his emergency. It is because of us and our attitude and because of the attitude of certain other people, uh, certain other countries in Latin America and certain other countries. Uh, this then is the parallel, the parallel, which this uh, paragraph is talking about. An emergency in our country at that time, in their country at this time. John, well, this is very interesting to me to find out about the restrictions on newspapers in 1950 because I was in the newspaper business at that time. I don't recall seeing any such uh, government bureau established in my office to tell us what to print. Uh, exactly what do you have a reference to? Well, I have reference to the obvious fact that during wartime, uh, haphazard guesses and uh, information are not given out by anyone uh, in regards to military or strategical uh, comments, such as uh, comments or, or, or leaks about uh, neutrons or movements and so forth. Uh, news was controlled at that time to that extent, as it, as it is always controlled during a war or a uh, national emergency, always. Do you feel that news is controlled in the United States today regarding Cuba? It is a self-control, yes, imposed by the by the uh, by most newspapers. Uh, uh, of course, uh, I don't know whether I'm being fair, but uh, of course I would have to point to the Times Picayune State Island Syndicate, since it is the only paper we have in New Orleans, and a very restricted paper it is. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee has often approached this paper with information or comments, and this paper has consistently refused because of the fact that it is sympathetic uh, to the anti-Castro regime. It is, it is systematically refused to print anything objective, anything giving the other man's viewpoint about Cuba. Would you care to uh, list the dates of the persons that you talked to in the papers that refused to print this material? Uh, I do not know the uh, name of the reporter. I did speak to the city editor. I spoke to him one week ago, and I spoke to him yesterday, Friday, which was immediately after our demonstration when I and several other of my members had a demonstration in front of the International Trademark, which was filmed by WGSTV and shown last night on the news. At now, look, at, look how interesting this is, Gary Larry. He's saying these were his allies, his associates with a fair blade for Cuba. The host knows these are anti-Cuba, anti-Castro people. So he ought to pick up on this right now and go after Oswald for an apparent inconsistency. I think it's very uh, good that Oswald was able to talk about having spoken to the city editor on, on two specific occasions at least. That tends to lend legitimacy to his assertion. But I think he's put himself in a bit of a, a dilemma here if the host picks up on the fact that the others with him demonstrate in front of the trademark, were actually known to the host to be anti-Castro, whereas Lee is posing as pro. Yeah, it's amazing he's about to talk about that picture that we've been talking about for months now. Here we go. T tell us about it, Lee. Two o'clock, I went to the Times-Picayune, informed them of our demonstration, which was very well covered by WDSU-TV. Mm -hmm. And uh, they told me at that time that due to the fact that they were not sympathetic 
to this organization or to the aims and ideas of this organization, they would not print any information that I gave them. They did say that if I would care to write a letter to the editor, they might put that in the letter to the editor column. Mr. Oswald, does it make any difference to you if any of the activities of the local branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, benefit the Communist Party or the goals of international communism? Doesn't make any yeah. Well, that is what I believe you, you would term a loaded question. However, I will attempt to answer it. Uh, it is inconsistent with my ideals to support communism, my personal ideals. It is inconsistent with the ideals of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee excuse me, to support the ideals of international communism. We are not occupied with that problem. We are occupied with the problem of Cuba. We do not believe, under any circumstances, that in supporting our uh, ideas about Cuba, our pro-Castro, as you call them, ideals, we do not believe that that is inconsistent with believing in democracy. Quite the contrary. We believe that it is a necessity in supporting democracy to support Fidel Castro and his right to, to make his country any way he wants to. Not, not so much the right uh, to uh, destroy uh, us. Of course, we have our, our rights uh, about defense. In other words, uh, we do not feel that we are supporting international communism or communism in supporting Fidel Castro. What other political leaders in Latin America today do you feel uh, fulfill the Fair Play for Cuba Committee's um, uh, requirements for a democratic political leader? Well, uh, you know, there's a funny story about Latin America. It goes something like, uh, like this, coffee, bananas, sugar, and a few other products. In other words, that refers to the so-called banana countries, uh, countries which, which uh, like Cuba up to this time, uh, had a one-crop agriculture, a one-crop economy. And where did those crops go? They went to the United States. Now, the attitude of those countries who are controlled by the United States, whose economy depends almost 100% upon how much money the, uh, the United States pours into them, those countries cannot be expected to give an independent viewpoint on Cuba or Castro. The few countries which abstained at certain international uh, inter-American meetings during the last year are those countries which are big enough to support themselves, those countries being only Brazil, Argentina, and perhaps in some cases the Democratic Republic of Costa Rica, which is, by the way, the only democratic republic in all of Central America. What is your definition of democracy? My definition, uh, well, the definition of democracy. That's a very good one. That's a very controversial viewpoint. You know, it used to be very clear, but now it's not. You, you know, when our forefathers grew up the Constitution, they considered that democracy was, was creating an atmosphere of freedom, of discussion, of argument, of finding the truth, uh, the, the rights of, well, the classic right of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In Latin America, they have none of those rights. Definition of democracy. He ought to say something along the following lines, that in making decisions that affect the entire nation, the responsibility for those decisions ought to be borne by those who are going to be affected by them, in other words, determined by the people. Uh, a collective decision-making regarding issues that are going to affect the nation 
it, it, it seems to me is a far better, more accurate definition of democracy. Where today, as Mark Twain observed long ago, uh, we have discovered that if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it, and they aren't. Yeah, it seems like mainstream media a long, long time ago. So here we go. You know, I hadn't heard this in so long. It's like hearing for the first time. In a minority and not to be suppressed, the right to see for yourself without government restrictions, such countries as Cuba, and we are, by the way, uh, restricted from going to Cuba. Mr. Ago, when was the last time you were in Latin America? Uh, I've been only to Mexico in my life, sir. Uh, I'm not fully uh, acquainted with uh, Latin America personally, but then I'm not the president of this organization either. I'm merely a volunteer, a secretary of this local chapter. I do not claim to, to be an expert on Latin America, but then very few people do. Uh, certainly, it is obvious to me, being, having been educated here in New Orleans, uh, and having been instilled with the ideas of democracy and objectiveness that uh, that Cuba and the, the right of the Cubans to self-determination is more or less uh, self-evident. And one does not have to travel through uh, Central and South America. Uh, one does not have to see the poverty in Chile or Peru or the suppression of democratic liberties by the Samoa brothers in Nicaragua in order to draw one's conclusion about Cuba. So the fair play for Cuba can Hungary in 1956, or the poverty in any of the Eastern Bloc countries today? Officially, no, but of course we have our own opinions about uh, uh, such situation. We consider that uh, Russian imperialism is, is uh, a very bad thing. It was a bad thing in Hungary. We certainly do not support uh, dictatorship or the uh, suppression of any peoples anywhere. But as I say, and as I must stress, we are preoccupied only with uh, the, the problem of Cuba, officially. We'll return for more questions after this message. All right, I think it's pretty interesting. Do you know? Yeah, again, uh, I'm what uh, comes to mind here, Jim and Gary, is that uh, this guy is 24 years old. You know, the uh, people, the same guys, you know, at his age, you know, are tinkering, you know, with hot rods, you know, going out to clubs, you know, trying to get laid, you know, and this guy is... <laughs> two miles from here, and uh, he was very much a 
a New Orleans boy, born in the French Quarter, in fact. Uncle Dutch. <laughs> Mr. Oswald, uh, you have the title of, of, of Secretary of the New Orleans Chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Uh, however, you just said that you've never been to Latin America except uh, for a few ventures in New Mexico. In that case, just exactly how do you get your information concerning Latin American affairs or Latin American conditions? Well, as I say, we are... So where do you think he gets his information about all this? J. Edgar? Right, exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Here we go. Preoccupied with the problem of Cuba. There are uh, correspondents, uh, people who correspond with the headquarters in New York from Cuba, directly from Cuba. That is where they get their information about Cuba. Now, in regards to Latin and Central America, you do not have to be a, uh, you do not have to have your own correspondent there. The AP and the UP cover it very well. And they uh, certainly give a very uh, clear picture of the situation in, in certain countries. Uh, Nicaragua and so forth, as I mentioned, which uh, have very undemocratic regimes, dictatorships. And uh, as I say, these things are well known by everyone, and they accepted it as truth. But for instance, you will, not, you will not be able to find any official or any person who knows about Latin America who will say that Nicaragua uh, does not have a dictatorship. Very interesting that you should mention dictatorships in Nicaragua, um, because we naturally, from reading your press, have heard about these dictatorships for many, many years. But uh, it's curious to me as, as to why no Nicaraguans fled to the United States last year, whereas we had possibly 50 to 60,000 Cubans fleeing from Cuba to the United States. Yeah. What is the Fair Play for Cuba Committee's official uh, reply to this? Well, a good question. Uh, Nicaraguan situation is one uh, considerably different from uh, Castro's Cuba. People are not inclined to flee their countries unless some new system, not some new factor enters into their lives. I must say that very uh, surely into the Nicaragua, uh, Nicaragua, no new factors have entered for about 300 years. In fact, the people live exactly how, uh, as they have always lived uh, in Nicaragua. I'm referring to the overwhelming majority of people in Nicaragua, which is a feudal dictatorship uh, with 90% of the people engaged in agriculture. These peasants uh, are uneducated. They uh, have uh, one of the lowest living standards in, in all of uh, the Western Hemisphere. And so uh, because of the fact that no new uh, factor has entered into their lives, because of the fact that no liberating factor has entered into their lives, they remain in Nicaragua. Now, the people who have fled Cuba, that is an interesting uh, situation. Uh, needless to say, there are classes of criminals. There are classes of people who are, who are wanted in Cuba for crimes against humanity, and most of those people are the same people who in New Orleans have set themselves up in stores with blood money and who, uh, who engage in, in the day-to-day -day trade with, with New Orleanians. Those are the people who would certainly not want to go back to Cuba and who would certainly uh, uh, want to flee Cuba. There are other classes. There are peasants who do not like the uh, collectivization in uh, Cuban agriculture. There are others who, for one reason or another, more or less legitimate reasons, uh, reasons of opinion, have fled Cuba. Most of these people flee by legal means. They are allowed to leave after uh, requesting the uh, Cuban government to break the visas. Some of these people uh, 
for some reasons or another, uh, do not like to uh, apply for these uh, visas or they feel that they cannot get them, they flee. They flee Cuba in boats. They flee any way they can go. And I think that the opinion and the attitude of the Cuban government to this is good riddance. Mr. Oswald, that's very interesting uh, because uh, as a reporter in this field for, for some time, I've been interviewing refugees for now about three years. And uh, I'd say that uh, the last Batista man officially that I talked to left Cuba about two and a half years ago. The rest of them that I've talked to have been taxi cab drivers, day laborers, uh, cane cutters, and that sort of thing. Uh, I thought that the revolution was supposed to benefit these people. What is the fair uh, for Cuba's uh, position on this? Well, as I say, there are different classes. Uh, a minority of class uh, of these people are, as I say, uh, are people who uh, were Batista criminals and so forth. Uh, it may not be true that the people fleeing nowadays are completely uh, cleansed of Batista elements. Uh, certainly some of these Batista rights have been hiding or have been engaging in counter-revolutionary activities ever since uh, the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion and even before that, just after the revolution. In other words, they have remained on the ground. Uh, oh, undoubtedly, the overwhelming majority of people uh, during the last year, for instance, who have fled Cuba, have been uh, uh, not batista rights, rather uh, peasants uh, uh, class. Uh, you say the revolution is supposed to benefit these people. You know, it's very funny about revolutions. Revolutions require work. Revolutions require sacrifice. Revolutions, and our own included, require a certain amount of, uh, of ration, a certain amount of calluses, a certain amount of of sacrifice, sacrificing one's old personal uh, ideas about country, uh, citizenship, work. And these people who have fled Cuba have not been able to adapt themselves to these new factors which are, have entered into their lives. These people are the uneducated. These people are the people who did not remain in Cuba to be educated by young people who, who were afraid of the alphabet, who were afraid of these new things which were occurring, who were afraid uh, that, in, that they would lose something by collectivization. They were afraid that they would lose something by seeing their sugar crops uh, uh, taken away and in place of sugar crops, some other vegetable, some other uh, product planted because Cuba has always been a one product country, more or less. These are people who have not been able to adapt. Mr. Oliver, you say their sugar crops, uh, most of the Cubans I've talked to that have, that have had anything to do with agriculture in the last year and a half have not owned one single acre of ground. They were cane cutters. That is and they're the ones that are fleeing the Castro regime. That is correct, sir. That is very, very true, and I'm very glad you brought that point up. You know, it used to be that these people uh, worked for the United Fruit Company. The American companies engaged in sugar refinery, oil refinery in Cuba. They worked uh, a few months every year during the cane cutting or the sugar cutting, uh, the sugar refining season. Uh, they never owned anything, and they feel now that that little bit of right, the right to work for five months a year, has been taken away from them. They feel that now they have to work all year round to plant new crops, to make a new economy. And so they feel that they have been robbed. They feel that they have been robbed of the right uh, to do as they please because of the fact that the government now depends upon its people to, to build its economy, to industrialize itself. So they figure they have been robbed. And what they do not realize is that they have been robbed of the right to be exploited, robbed of the right to be cheated, robbed of the right of New Orleans uh, companies 
to, to take away what was rightfully theirs. Of course, they have to share now. Everybody uh, uh, gets an equal portion. Yeah, it sounds like he's talking about the Raleigh Coffee Company is one of them. Well, you know, a point you made before, Gary, he is uh, rather sophisticated in his manner of dealing with these issues. That's right. Don't you agree, Don't you agree Larry? Absolutely. Yeah. This is right from the beginning. And uh, the more uh, you listen you listen, you listen, listen to this tape, this uh, audio file, uh, you realize more and more his sophistication. Now, I, I just wanted to make a couple of comments here very quickly uh, where he's talking about the cane cutters and the revolutionaries. You know, if you study the Cuban Revolution, uh, you will realize that this was a, re- a revolution of very young people. The average age of every uh, revolutionary in Cuba was only 17 years old. And uh, the revolution uh, came from the cities, uh, from the younger people who organized in different cells. Uh, For example, in Oriente province, where Santiago, the the city of Santiago is located, that's the eastern uh, part of of Cuba. That's where the Cuban revolution was supposed to have started. And uh, people, unsung heroes who died in that revolution, later Fidel Castro, over, you know, after they had done the, the dirty the dirty work, uh, so to speak, like uh, Jose Antonio Chavarria in Havana and in uh, Santiago, uh, Frank pa- Pais and his brothers and other other people who were the ones who organized that revolution. And Frank, Frank Pais, for whom uh, there's an airport name, was only 22 and he was assassinate, assassinated by Batista's police. Okay, and he was a major organizer in in Cuba, in Oriente Province, in that area. That from there, the 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 revolution spread westward towards Havana. So anyway, uh, Lee is very very perceptive in in talking about the youth, you know, in Cuba uh, uh, as as being uh, you know those that were really the instigators of the revolution. So that was very, very observant of, of him, you know, and as you say, Jim, very sophisticated. And, and I'm thinking that this might have been rehearsed, you know, that he had been given all this information. You know, let's not forget that his favorite uh, series, remember TV series? What was that? I Live Three Lives. Right, right. Herbert Philbrick. I Live Three Lives. That's right. By Philbrick. Yes, yes. So, and, and so he's sort of like playing the part here, you know, as, yes. as it seems here, you know. So, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Already thought his whole life about playing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you're right. I I might be thinking about a different clip, but there is some point where uh, he starts to um, evade the questions. But so far, he's been right on, just like you are saying. So, all right, Lee. Tell the truth. The dog eat dog economy. What do you uh, refer to as the dog-eat-dog economy? Is that, uh, is that capitalism in your definition? No, that is a, an economy where uh, uh, the people do not depend upon each other. They have no feelings of uh, nationality. They have no feelings of culture. They have no feelings of any ties whatsoever on a high level. It is every man for himself. That is what I refer to by dog-eat-dog. Are you familiar with the existence of black market in Soviet Russia or in Red China? Whereas um, uh, the majority of the populace get their food, uh, their their truck crops, their vegetables, and such from this market. Do you know of such a uh, a market? Uh, I uh, I know about uh, the fact that there is a market in the Soviet Union only for Western uh, apparel, Western apparel, and certain other items. There is no black market in in the Soviet Union for food, none whatsoever. By black market, I assume that you mean. Uh, 
a situation where food is either stolen or drones in one area and then taken to another area and sold uh, covertly, undercover. Uh, no, such uh, no such system exists in Russia. Mr. Oswald, uh, I'm curious about your personal background. Uh, if you could tell us something about uh, where you came from, your education, and uh, your your career to date, we'd be interested. All right. Before he says that, I have, I have a question. First of all, he seems to be completely setting himself up for the assassination. But him talking about Mexico, do y'all believe that part of the CIA framing him is part is because of him being on this radio station? Gary, it's the other way around. He was assigned a certain role. The right. role he was assigned was the way they were setting him up. He's carrying out his role very well, but it's with complete lack of knowledge. He has no understanding that he's going to be the patsy. That only comes on him after his arrest. You know, he's being got the president. He doesn't realize how easily he doesn't realize how easily this can get flipped on him, Jim. Exactly, I agree completely. Yeah, you can hear things that he's saying that later on becomes to his detriment. Yeah, but yeah, of course. But that's because he'd been instructed to present himself this way, Gary. That's right. Not that's in right. any knowledge whatsoever that he was going to be the, the bad guy in Dallas. And don't forget, Jim, this is need to know. So he's just got to follow orders. Right. That's absolutely right. All compartmentalized. All right. I'll be very happy to. I was born in New Orleans in 1939. Uh, for a short length of time during my childhood, I lived in Texas and in New York. Uh, during my junior high school days, I attended Beauregard Junior High School. I attended that school for two years. Uh, then I went to Warren Eastern High School. I attended that uh, school for over a year. Then my family and I moved to Texas, uh, where we had many relatives, and uh, I continued my schooling there. Uh, then I entered the United States Marine Corps in 1956. Uh, I spent three years in the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the uh, position of buck sergeant. And uh, I served honorably, having been discharged. Then I went back to work in the Texas and have recently arrived in New Orleans to, with my family, uh, with my wife and my child. What particular event in your life um, made you decide that the, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee had the correct answers about the about Cuban and U.S. relations? By the way, by the way, as no, I've observed no, in the context, there no. are no communists in the Marine Corps. I mean, you know, that's just absurd. You know, they, they called him uh, Oswaldovich because he had an interest in these issues, not because he was a communist. I mean, that's just so ludicrous. No, I can't the Marines. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it gave the Marine Corps a bad name, you know, the theory that uh, it was being spread that there had been a, commun a communist among their ranks. Well, that dick it was. But you know that he made Buck Sergeant in three years is, uh, is a reasonable accomplishment. That's that, right. That, that, that speaks well of him. All right, here we go. That's very true, I think. Uh, I became acquainted with it at about the same time as everybody else in 1960 beginning in 1960. Uh, I always felt that the Cubans were being pushed into this, uh, to the Soviet bloc by American policy. I still feel that way. Our policy, if it had been handled differently, and many others uh, much uh, more informed than I have said the same thing, 
uh, if that uh, situation had been handled differently, we would not have the big problem of Castro's Cuba now, uh, the big international political uh, problem. Although I feel that uh, it's, a, it's a, a just and a, a right uh, development in Cuba, uh, still we could be on much friendlier relations with them and had the government of the United States, its government agencies, particularly uh, certain covert, uh, uh, covert undercover agencies like the uh, now defunct CIA. Absolutely. Well, its leadership is now defunct. Alan Dulles is now defunct. Uh, that, uh, I believe that uh, without all that meddling, with a little bit different uh, humanitarian handling of the situation, uh, Cuba would not be the problem it is today. Is there any particular act of the U.S. government you feel that, uh, that puts Castro into Soviet arms? Well, uh, as I say, uh, Castro's Cuba, even after the revolution, was still a one-crop economy, having uh, basing its economy on sugar. When we slashed the uh, Cuba, uh, Cuban uh, sugar quota, of course, we cut their throat. They had to turn to some other country. Uh, they had to uh, turn to some other uh, hemisphere in which to sell their, this, one, uh, this one product. They did so, and they have sold it to Russia. And uh, because of that, the price of Russian Cuba, uh, Russian uh, uh, sugar is now down quite a bit, whereas ours is going up and up and up. And uh, I believe that was the big uh, factor, the cutting of the uh, uh, sugar quota. Do you think that the uh, U.S. government under President Eisenhower ever wanted to help the Castro regime? Ever offered any sort of help to it? True to our democratic policies, uh, uh, certain people, certain uh, persons in the government, and uh, certain policies uh, adopted very late but adopted by the government helped Fidel Castro while he was still in the mob. That is very true. We cut off aid to Batista. Just before the revolution, just before, that was too late. We had already done more harm than we could have ever done before. We were just rats sinking a, uh, uh, leaving a sinking ship, you see. That was not the thing to do. We have, however, uh, as I said, helped him. Uh, we have not and now cut off all that help. There's one point of view which I've heard to the effect that uh, the Castro turned left because he, he could not get any aid. For industrialization in Cuba for, from the United States. Uh, did the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, believe that? Not, uh, not entirely, no. We feel that was a factor, certainly. But we feel that, uh, that the, the, the current uh, of the history of the world is not running to, to that extreme. In other words, countries emerging from colonial uh, uh, domination and so forth are definitely adopting uh, socialistic leftist, Marxist, and even in some case, uh, what will be in the future communist regimes and uh, communist uh, uh, inclinations. You see, this is something which is a, apparently a world trend. Does the Fair Play for Cuba Committee believe that this trend should also be copied in, in the United States? No, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is occupied only with the Cuban uh, problem. Uh, I don't think that they, uh, uh, they feel that way, no. Thank you very much, Mr. Oswald. Uh, tonight we've been talking with Lee Oswald, the uh, secretary of the New Orleans chapter of the Pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuban Committee. In subsequent programs, we will present other leaders concerned with the U.S.-Cuban conflict. Good night. Right. Well, I thought that was uh, excellent, uh, Gary. I'm glad you played it, and the timing was good. Larry, your thoughts about the whole event? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I just want 
little bit about that last portion there, you know, when he's talking about uh, the CIA being defunct, you know, I, I mean, that's just flabbergasting, Jim. You know, he's talking about, you know, and he's knowing that the CIA is defunct. The CIA has been decapitated because Alan Dulles has been fired by uh, JFK. You know, so that's uh, what he's talking about here. And another thing, uh, he uh, might give us uh, an indication of when uh, Lee might have turned, you know, to the special assignment to uh, portray the communists and whatever. Uh, Jim Botello, who I spoke to and interviewed uh, in November, uh, told us uh, about uh, Lee inviting him in 1960, right before he went to the Soviet Union, to go with him to Cuba to train uh, revolutionaries. Okay, so uh, I, I think uh, this sort of this whole conversation here brings everything you know nicely in, in, into place, you know, as far as the activities of, of Lee uh, uh, are concerned, you know. And so, uh, uh, fantastic audio, Gary. Uh, congratulations for for bringing it up tonight. I think those are very astute points, Larry, about the CIA because it, far from being decapitated, it would strike back at the man who had fired its. Uh, iconic leader, Alan Dulles, and his two key deputies, Richard Bissell and Charles Cabell, who, of course, was the brother of the mayor of Dallas, where JFK would be taken out. Yeah, and, and with the calmness that he says it, and that's what really, you know, struck me here, here while I was listening to that, you know, defunct. Okay, that's a strong word. <laughs> and reading Alan Dulles' name, too. That was pretty yeah. heavy. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear him say Alan Dulles like that. So yeah, exactly. now this radio show here sparked the next thing that we're going to do. These are only 10 minutes apiece, but it's a debate between Carlos Bringier. If I'm saying, am I saying it right, Larry? Yeah, Bringier, Bringier, Bringier. Yeah, Bringier. That's good enough. You never do this Spanish accent like that. Anyway, we've got Ed Butler and Carlos Bringier. And then Lee Oswald in a debate next week. So we're going to delve into that. And we promise we're going to get to the Bortello video interview. We promise. And uh, did you want to talk about um, the, the uh, overlays with the chin with uh, Roscoe White? Oh, yeah, yeah. We can do that. Uh, yeah, that, that was pretty nice that came out today. That was from Don Ratliff, a uh, researcher who brought that to my attention. And I did overlays on the chin of Roscoe uh, in one of the f photographs, his marine photographs, and it, it, uh, it uh, lines up perfectly with the uh, backyard photos, you know, from well, the uh, from the lower lip down, which we know that that's the area where they had uh, pasted uh, yeah. head onto uh, the figure of the backyard photo. Well, an article entitled The Framing of the Pats of Patsies, the case of Lee Harvey Oswald, which Jim Mars and I co-authored, we identified Roscoe White as having been the stand-in for Lee Oswald there. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, we, that was yeah, we, we, yeah. that was quite a few years ago. But I'm glad to have more confirmation uh, because that kind of superposition is just the kind of thing that can make a real difference and convince people who may have been, you know, unwilling to commit. Yeah, and I found that uh, very uh, interesting. You know, that uh, somebody uh, brought that up. You know, because they know know they know that we've done uh, some work on the backyard photos. And uh, and and it, I was surprised. I was very surprised to see that it lined up perfectly. You know. Yeah. So and, and we spoke about that when we went in 2014 uh, over to uh, Neely, uh, and we stood over there uh, where the backyard photos were taken, and uh, we spoke about how you know even the uh, that anomaly that uh, Roscoe had on his wrist, you know that bump, you know that right. uh, 
Right. Yeah, that, that that was also present in the photograph, yeah. you know, so we knew right away. We were right, right there, but this is, like you said, Jim, further confirmation. You know? Yeah, Jim Mars pointed out that month to me of which I'd previously been unaware. Yeah. That's a pretty that's a pretty nice article for anyone who wants to know more because we also review all the research of Jack White on this very subject where Judith Mary Baker made a very valuable contribution as well. All of our research converges on the same conclusions about the faking of the backyard photographs. And it seems to me that any any American who knew no more than that the backyard photographs had been faked would understand that Oswald was set up to take the fall for the death of JFK. Absolutely. All right, this has been JFK Show number 106. And um, we're going to go ahead and thank everyone. But Dr. Fester is going to talk with us a little bit about a fundraiser that's coming up. And Chance, I am planning on dropping some money in your GoFundMe account. So, Dr. Fester, tell us about the new equipment fundraiser we're having. Well, we've been hit so many times. Chance has come home only to find all of his servers were wiped. He's had to reestablish everything. We get by getting new equipment, better equipment, uh, with more security features. That will be an important way to cope with it. And I intend to uh, make a contribution for Moonrock Books for this project. And I encourage everyone else to do what they can. Indeed, I'm even willing to suggest that I will match all the contributions that are made by everyone else to ensure that this project is a success. All right. Looks like we're on our way to better equipment and better protection. All right. Thank you, Chance George, Larry Rivera, Dr. James Fesser. Oh, Dr. Jim Fesser, that's it. And it's fine. It's fine. It's fine, Gary. All right. We're, we're good. We're good, my friend. Right. And most importantly, we'd like to thank Lee Oswald for appearing on our show tonight. Good night, everybody.